This passage is, uh, I'm sure, a familiar passage to all of us, but uh, I think it is just such an essential passage. Uh, It it deals with something that, for, I mean, no other way of saying it, we all struggle with, and that is this subject of of unbelief. Uh, I I would suggest that for... The average person, and I look at you and I think you're all very average, um, <laughs> is, is to believe the gospel as much as it should be believed. I think most of us just struggle to really believe. We, I, I, don't, I don't look at anyone and think, well, they're, they're non-believers, but there is such a... a such a, a bent in our, in our heart and in the world that we live in that makes just fully, truly believing what God's word says very unnatural. Makes it a great challenge. Makes it, makes it an uphill battle. And so I am so thankful that the, the, the word that we have in the gospel of Mark today is for the person who struggles with unbelief, the person who is aware enough of their fragile spirit that they cry out, help my unbelief. Because I would say at the end of most days, that is probably the one thing I should be praying, the one thing I need to ask for. I mean, God has given us so much in the gospel, and yet I live with so much anxiety, so much fear, so much doubt, so much pride, (laughs) that it's like, am I believing this at all? So if you're at all in that situation, I, I think that this text is profoundly relevant to us. And so I have to start with a confession. Uh... Like you, I'm very average, right? Uh, it, it, is, it is embarrassing how many times I spend my week working on the sermon and get to Saturday and say, oh my, I haven't even prayed over this thing. <laughs> I just get so busy that I actually neglect prayer. I... I, I I am uh, given to a a do it, solve it, get it figured out, and get it going sort of constitution that the idea of of prayer, the idea of just sitting in the silence of the Lord's presence is something that easily crowds itself out of of my average week. Prayer prayer is often more duty than, than delight. Even as much as I know and even as much delight as I have had in prayer time, it remains like vegetables sometimes. And it's, it's hard. It's hard to eat those vegetables. But prayer's not vegetables. But, but sometimes it feels that way. And so this text, I preach it first to myself, but I believe we're probably all in a similar situation 
Last week, we got to look at one of those texts that we, we all really love, the, the mountaintop experience of the transfiguration, the, the, the vision of glory, the scene, the kingdom and splendor, the being just amazed and awed and, and it feeling like the, 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 the air itself is electric, right? That, that was what we had last week. And we saw the, the importance of that was so that the disciples could face the suffering and the hardship of discipleship that was going to be in front of them because they would know that as hard as it gets, as much suffering as is on this path, there is glory on the other side. And so do not lose your soul in this world when you know that there is glory ahead. And so that was an important lesson, but most of discipleship, most of our life does not happen on the mountain. And in fact, this week, we see exactly what happens uh, at the bottom of the mountain. The nine disciples that did not go up with Jesus, who were left at the bottom, they are making a mess of things. I mean, they have just fumbled the ball at the one-yard line, and it's getting carried back for six points. It's bad. So, so we've gone from one passage of, of a mountaintop experience, and now we are in a passage of the mess at the bottom. So let me ask you today, where are you? Are you in that mountaintop moment, or are you closer to that mess in the valley? Let me ask you more specifically, where is the battle right now for your belief? Where is the promise of the gospel? Where is the hope of the gospel? Where is the security of the gospel most in doubt, getting the least foothold in your day-to-day -day life? Where are you living as if it's not true? Where are you most forgetful? Where is the battle for belief? Because we are all in a valley battling for belief, and sometimes we are losing it, as this uh, group of disciples uh, are experiencing. But the good news and the reason that this passage is encouragement is that in this passage, we are going to see that Christ gives us the help that we need when we struggle with unbelief. As we go through this passage, the main point is Christ helps those who struggle with unbelief. And this passage is going to, as we unfold it, we're going to see that he, he, he gives us the help that we need in three different ways. So we're going to go through this passage piece by piece. We're going to see, first of all, how Christ gives us the help that we need in our unbelief is that Christ comes to us in our unbelief. Christ comes to us in our unbelief. So Jesus has left the nine disciples who were not named John, uh, James, or Peter, uh, who he took up to the top of the mountain for the transfiguration. He has left nine at the bottom, and uh, he, he, he leaves them with just the, the general task of be my disciples and, uh, and be my witnesses. And so the three have gone up to the transfiguration, and I don't know exactly how much time it took to do the transfiguration. They had to climb a mountain, they had this moment at the top, and then they came down the mountain. It's probably a day, you know, something along that uh, uh, time frame, but maybe it was a couple days that the disciples were on their own at the bottom. 
And when uh, we come back to these nine disciples, we discover that they have just failed and failed huge with them uh, being apart from Jesus. So look, look at how the passage begins in verse 14 again. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. I mean, this, this, this is the, uh, the Thanksgiving feast when Uncle gets a little vocal, right? It's like, it's a mess now. <laughs> we, we're now talking about things we, we don't want to talk about. Um, we have the disciples at the bottom of the mountain. There's this big crowd, and this is a crowd that is not being uh, amazed with the message of Jesus, not being amazed with the works of Jesus. They are a crowd embroiled in a big brouhaha, a big argument. We have the scribes, and every time we hear about the scribes, we know that they're there to, to pillory whatever's happening with the disciples. And boy, do they have a choice moment because the disciples are failing. And so they're having this big argument. It's this big ruckus. And we find that the reason that they're having this, this ruckus is because the disciples had this uh, man with his young boy come to him, and this boy was afflicted with a seizure-inducing demonic presence. And they failed in curing this boy. Even though they had done many exorcisms in the past, they were failing at this particular case. And so just kind of enter into the disciples in this place. Enter into the, the feeling of this particular failure. Right? They are here failing in an area of giftedness. Right? They had fame. They had renown for being able to exorcise demons. They are failing in front of a huge crowd. Lots of eyeballs here. They are failing in front of their adversaries. I mean, the scribes, I've just been waiting for this moment to show that this Jesus movement is just a, a, a three-card Monty game. It's a, it's a joke. It's, it's smoke and mirrors. These disciples are, are frauds. And here it is right in front of them. And so they are failing in front of the very people that you just, I mean, you just can't think about, oh, please don't let me fail in front of them, right? And then finally, they are failing in front of someone who put their faith and trust in them. We have this father who has traveled who knows how far, but traveled with this boy who has been afflicted so terribly, and he comes to him and says, I have heard that you can help. And they fail in front of that guy. This is a humiliating failure. And how do the disciples respond? Well, they quickly go down to their knees and they start, they start praying and they start calling for God and they start asking for his help. That's what the disciples do in this moment, right? No, no, they don't. The disciples get into the argument. The disciples argue. The disciples fight. The disciples get into the, into the crowd. What, what are the disciples doing? They are not demonstrating faith. They are dem demonstrating face-saving, right? 
They, they, they aren't thinking about their faith. They aren't thinking about uh, the, the gospel. They aren't thinking about Jesus. They are thinking about how am I going to save my face in front of all of this uh, embarrassment. And it is because that is what Jesus finds when he shows up, a crowd just arguing with each other, pointing fingers at each other, including the disciples, that Jesus rebukes the disciples along with the crowd with these punchy words in verse 19. He says, and he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? You can read those words several different ways, but they sting. I mean, Jesus is just basically saying, none of you, none of you have any faith. You're all faithless. You're all living as if I don't exist. Even my disciples, you're faithless. You you see, what has happened here? is that because of the failure, because of the embarrassment, the the disciples have quickly become entirely horizontal in their thinking, right? There's no no vertical thoughts. There's no uh, uh, consideration of God or or, or invocation of God. There is just a completely horizontal uh, uh, aspect, a horizontal approach to what is happening here. The the father, all he looks at is the inability of these disciples. The scribes, all they do is judge, right? And the disciples, all they do is is self-justify. You see, everything here is horizontal. They, they, they are only dealing with what they can see and touch, what they can explain and what they can blame. This is a flat world. And they are experiencing and acting out a flat world because this is the nature of unbelief. The nature of unbelief is to focus on the self and on the world. That's That's the perspective. It's entirely horizontal. This scene looks a lot like us, doesn't it? I mean, this this is the world that we live in. The, The belief system of our age is secularism, right? And secularism is the idea that we can divide the vertical part of life from the horizontal part of life. And most of life is horizontal. Your workplace is horizontal. Your your sports fandom is horizontal. Your hobbies are horizontal. Most of your relationships are horizontal. Secularism says don't bring in the vertical unless absolutely necessary. And about the only place that the vertical is absolutely necessary is church. And there's a lot more things you could be doing than going to church. (laughs) But that's secularism, right? Secularism divides the vertical from the horizontal and makes more and more of life horizontal. And so as we get sucked into it, and it is, it is almost impossible not to get sucked into secularism. It is, it is, it is, it, 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 we have to adopt that mode of thinking almost to survive in this world. But the nature of secularism is to put us in a frame of unbelief. 
Because it calls us to focus every moment and almost every circumstance either on self or on the world. So where would you say you are living horizontally? Where would you say you have become overly focused on the self or on the world? I I would say you're not engaging the question if nothing's coming to mind. You are engaging the question if you're like, I'm still answering the question. (laughs) Because it is pervasive. And so this is what happens. We quickly fall into secularism. We quickly fall into the horizontal. And failure is a quick way to get there. But there are multiple different examples so that is why I love verse 15. And immediately, uh, let's see here. Um, and when they came, well, let's, let's, let's back up to um, uh, verse 15. And when they came to the disciples, this is Jesus, now verse 15. Immediately, all of the crowd, when they saw him, Jesus, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. Do you see what happens the moment that this uh, uh, crowd sees Jesus? Immediately, hope emerges when the focus turns to Jesus. Immediately, the argument kind of falls apart and there is hope and enthusiasm now that they see Jesus. Why does this happen? This happens because Jesus came to them. The crowd did not change their focus. Jesus came into the crowd. Jesus came to them. Jesus is the one who comes to this place of unbelief. Jesus comes to his disciples. He comes into their failure, into their unbelief. Not to judge. He doesn't come into this place to tisk tisk. He comes in to rescue. You see, this is the good news. And maybe this is the one word some of you need to know. No matter how greatly you have failed, no matter how far You have fallen in your faith. You can turn to Jesus. He will show up. And he will save you. You can turn to Jesus. No matter how much mud you are in. There is no biblical Jesus that says, you can't come to me because you are too messed up. The Jesus that came, the Jesus that is recorded in the scripture, came to save mess-ups and sinners and people whose faith have really gone off the rails. So, turn to Jesus. He will show up and he will save you. 
So the second way that uh, Christ gives help to those who struggle with unbelief then is, is this, that Christ challenges our unbelief. So, so the, the passage now focuses in on the situation with the man and his boy. The, the man comes forward and when Jesus says, what, what's going on here? And he explains the situation that he had brought his boy who has been suffering from this, this uh, demonic spirit that is causing this boy to, to uh, have seizures and all sorts of maladies. He says, I brought my boy to your disciples. And um, this dad, I mean, you, you can just see how fragile he is. Even as few words as, as Mark uses to tell this story, you, you can just see that this dad is just crumbling. He is, he is, he is battling despair. Right? I mean, what he is dealing with is so personal. This is my boy. My boy is suffering. There, there, there is nothing more agonizing than to say, my boy is not well. And then he shares that this has been something he has endured. It's prolonged. He says, my boy has been suffering with this since childhood. We're talking about years of suffering that this dad has been helpless and doing anything about. And it's a, it's a terrifying condition. He says that, that this demon casts him into fire and into water, trying to, trying to kill him. I mean, how terrifying must, must this dad's existence be that at any moment, this, this force is going to take over his child and throw him into a pond. Or roll them into the fire. And then, and then finally, I mean, he is hopeless. He says, I brought them to your disciples. Your disciples. That's a way of saying, Jesus, I brought them to your people. And they were not able. Your people failed. Have you been here? Have you experienced despair like this? Are, are you here now? Some of you have experienced those words, Jesus' people failed. Some, some of you have experienced church hurt, Right? which is a particularly painful kind of hurt because we come to the church expecting the grace and the love and the hope of the gospel. And when you come there and you find Jesus' people unable or unwilling or just flat refusing to show the love of Jesus, then it is, it is hard. That hurt goes so deep. And I know some of us have dealt with the hurt of the church. 
I know many people have lost their faith because of the failures of the church. And maybe you're in that that place. Maybe you're on the balance. It is come to the point that the man says to Jesus, if you can. And that measures the full toll of this crisis. Because in the phrase, if you can, the man is saying he no longer knows that Jesus can do anything. His despair has begun to swallow up his faith. And all he has is doubt. This man's faith is hanging by a thread. And I think it is interesting how Jesus deals with this man. Because his focus does not immediately go towards the boy. The first thing he cares about is the word if. Jesus says to the man, if. Don't you know all things are possible for the one who believes? Jesus focuses on the faith first. The faith before the the emergency of the boy. Why Why does he do that? This is similar to how Jesus dealt with the paralytic in the second chapter of Mark. We remember that the the four uh, friends of the paralytic open up the roof and lower this paralytic man down in front of Jesus. And it is very obvious when you look at the paralytic man why he is there. He is a paralytic. He, He wants to walk again. But the first thing that Jesus says to that man is not, oh, I'm so sorry that you're a paralytic. Let me heal you. The first words that he says Our son, your sins are forgiven. And we remember in that passage that Jesus is in taking away the sins first, uh, dealing with the, the, the more primal, the more urgent, the more serious condition. His sins were going to leave him in a state far worse than paralysis. And so he deals with them first. Well, the same thing is being expressed here in what Jesus addresses. Jesus comes to deal with the faith first because the faith of this man and its preservation is the most important thing. There is nothing more important in this world than that you keep your faith. Peter, the apostle, shares in his first epistle Uh, in uh, chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, these these words. He says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, a faith that is more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter is saying something very similar to what Jesus is acting out here in this this healing. 
He is saying you have been afflicted with trials and those trials have tested your faith. This boy has been a trial and his condition has tested your faith. But your faith must be kept because your faith is more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire. Keeping the faith is what Jesus focuses on first. Because it is the more urgent situation. And so Jesus says to this man, all things are possible for the one who believes. Now, we we come across these words, all things are possible to the one who believes, and we we can almost hear the twisting that some of our brothers start doing with verses like this. How they snatch a a verse that Jesus says, all things are possible for the person who believes, and so therefore, if you just believe enough, you can have anything you want, be it health or wealth or whatever. But we must recognize that Jesus is not here giving a bumper sticker to a theology of prosperity. He is giving us the fundamental truth that faith connects us to God. And because it connects us to God, there is nothing that is impossible for God. So if our faith is in God, we have the posture that it is never too late. It is never out of, of the realm of doable. It is never impossible because our God is the God of all things are possible. But all things is not here meant to say all that I want. It is not to say all the things that I ask for. It is only here to say that God is good and he is never limited. I don't know who the, the pastor is uh, who, who says this. He says it better than, than I do. But uh, the sentiment is true. We can trust him to do what is right. Because if we knew what he knows, then we would agree with what he does. Right? There are, are going to be a lot of prayers. There are going to be a lot of requests. There's going to be a lot of pleas that each and every one of us are going to make. And the answer that we get or the outcome that we see is not going to be the one that we think is the best idea. But we have to always remember that we are in a posture of faith. We are the creature, not the creator. The creator knows all things. The creator knows all, uh, all wisdom. And the, the creator has all power. And so if the creator who we have put our prayer to knows things that we do not know, then we have to trust that his answer to our prayer is based on what he knows and we don't know. Every single one of the disciples would have stopped the cross. And there would be absolutely nothing in the human sphere of understanding that would have ever said the cross can be made a good thing (laughs) and yet God in his wisdom refused to answer any prayer to save his son from the cross because he knew that by the cross 
all people can be forgiven of any sin. Right? And so, yes, our faith says all things are possible for God, but it also is conditioned with the faith that our God knows all things and he will do what is best with our situation. Right? So Jesus says, if to this man, he, he challenges the man in his unbelief, he, he focuses in on that, that little word if, and the man reacts. He says, I, I, I know what I said, and, and, I, and I despise what I said. He says, I, I believe. Help my unbelief. Help my unbelief, which is the, the most vulnerable and the most sincere statement that we see in this passage. You see, the, the amazing thing is, I believe, help my belief, is exactly the faith that is needed. The faith that says, help my unbelief, is sufficient for this man to, to, to receive the all things that are in Jesus. This man has the most fragile faith. It is, he knows it's, it's hanging by a thread, and he just blurts out, help my unbelief, which is a prayer which is a prayer that has enough faith in it to, to, to seek Jesus at the moment of need. And so what we see here is that Jesus is not asking for a mighty faith. He is asking for you to put your faith in him who is mighty. The smallest faith in the most powerful God will be enough. The thinnest thread connects us to all of his love and power. And Jesus does for this man what he wants us all to grasp. By this little thread, Jesus shows the, this group of people that he is God of all things possible. He speaks to this boy's demon. He says, depart from him and never come back. And we have this violent display of where the demon gives one last blow to the boy on his way out. And the, the text says it looked like he was dead. And there's a fair question whether he only looked dead. It is possible that this boy was dead. We don't know. All we know is that he was so beat up and so lifeless that like dead... Described him pretty well. And the way that Jesus takes charge of the situation is he takes the boy and he raises him up. The same language of resurrection is being used here to speak of lifting up this boy. And so there is a picture of, of resurrection that Jesus is doing to show that he is the God of all things possible. Beloved, this is the gospel. The gospel is death can't win. Death can't win. You may be hanging by a thread, but if that thread is connected to Jesus, it is made of iron. 
It is made of iron. What does Jesus say in John chapter 10, verse 28? I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Your faith today may be thin. Your faith may be very frail. It may be hanging by a thread. But it's in the hand of Jesus. So Christ comes to us in our unbelief. Christ challenges our unbelief. Finally, Christ counsels us out of unbelief. And so we come to this passage after the crowd has dispersed. The disciples are are in a private conversation with Jesus. And they want to know, what happened? Why did it mess up so bad, Jesus? You see... They, they, were, they were asking, you know, what was, our, what was wrong with our technique? What was, what, did we use the wrong words? Did we hold our hands the wrong way? It's, it's, you know, did, did, our, uh, did, we, did we need wands? Uh, what, was, what was the thing that was missing? You know, they had, they had, as we already have seen, they had focused on themselves and the world. They were not relying on Jesus. And so Jesus speaks to the question, why could we not cast it out in verse 29? He said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Prayer is the number one indicator of our reliance on God. And what Jesus is exposing to these disciples in private is, you did not go to prayer. You did not pray about this. You did not seek the help of heaven in this. That is why you failed. Prayerlessness is strong evidence that we have become horizontal. Whatever we're not praying about, we're horizontal. Do we practically believe in an all things possible God? If so, we will be taking everything to God in prayer. Now, I I had a wonderful little testimony of what everything means just this morning. So uh, Jesse is the person who helped set up uh, all of our sound equipment. And we could not figure out how to get our soundboard to turn on because it required a passcode. And he had forgotten the passcode, which is something I would, you know, we can all do. And so I went to work trying to find the passcode. And Jesse just prayed. (laughs) And after Jesse was done praying, he had the answer in his head of what the passcode was. And I was still trying to figure it out for him. In all things, we can pray. All right? This is... the. Passcode itself is not too small of a thing to pray. I wanted to live in the horizontal. Jesse said, no, we go vertical on this one. All things we take to God in prayer. I I, I love that William has been uh, developing our prayer ministry here at at Renew. And uh, he is going through the directory and he is sending an email to all of us. Please tell me what we can pray for you about. Let me challenge you. Answer that email with something. Give prayer requests to our prayer team. There is nothing too small to ask for. And if you come to that prayer uh, email and you're like, I don't think of anything, then pray help my unbelief. 
because I have become horizontal. So much so I can't think of anything to ask for prayer about. Right? You see, prayer is the way Jesus gives us to fight unbelief. Prayer immediately transforms life from horizontal to vertical. I love Philippians 4, 6, and 7. I know we all know it, but let us dwell upon it. It says, do not be anxious about anything, meaning anything. Passcodes, anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. According to Paul, there is no horizontal-only existence. Everything and anything is vertical when it is made a prayer. Let me summarize for you in a, a few words what I think Philippians 4, 6, and 7 says. Unbelief starves when prayer is fed. Unbelief starves when prayer is fed. And so the good news for every single one of us here is prayer means you are never a part of God, apart from God's presence and power. You are always able to bring God into the situation. You are always able to bring his presence, his peace, his power into the situation. That is what prayer means. That's Christ's counsel to take us out of unbelief. Pray about it. So to conclude, where do you need to pray? What is the first thing that God has put in front of you that you need to pray? Are you not experiencing growth in intimacy with God? Pray about it. Is the world demanding too much of your focus? Pray about it. Have you failed somewhere? I don't need to know about it, but pray about it. Do you need forgiveness? Pray. Do you need wisdom? Are you caught in doubt or despair? Where is your faith hanging by a thread? Beloved, cry out in prayer, help my unbelief. He is close by and he will answer. Amen?